Hi, I'm Laura from Catalyst Inc Connect. Welcome to another episode of Succeed in Business, Springboard, Northern Ireland's most powerful personalised accelerator programme. Shares everything you need to know and didn't know you didn't know. Everything you need to know to establish, grow and scale your business successfully. Springboard, accelerating innovation through experience. Today's episode, recorded at the Innovation Centre in Catalyst Inc, Belfast, is titled Across the Pond, An Entrepreneur's View. We are here with John and Jeff Harris, US Entrepreneur, VP Strategy and Analytics at Xerox and Springboard EIR. Okay, Jeff, you spent a little bit of time here. There are differences between entrepreneurs in the UK and Ireland and entrepreneurs in the US. From your perspective, what do you see as the key differences? The key differences that I've seen working with Catalyst and working with some of the entrepreneurs coming through Catalyst is, I'll describe it as the level of ambition um, that you often see displayed by um, entrepreneurs in Northern Ireland versus the U.S. I think the U.S. entrepreneur often has the sky's the limit as the, the possibility that they're going after. Whereas in a lot of the presentations we've seen from entrepreneurs, um, there is a desire to get to the 10 million pound turnover, 20 million pound turnover, and that's a good business. Whereas there, there's become a, a really large focus, right, especially in the Valley and in, in New York, about chasing the mythical unicorn. Um, and so that's, I, I think that's really um, probably one of the most significant ones where um, you know that you do have this unfettered ambition that the American entrepreneur displays that I have not seen as prevalent in Northern Ireland. What initiates the difference in the American entrepreneur going for the unicorn and the UK stroke Ireland entrepreneur who sees a ceiling where they then want to exit? Is there a cultural difference? Is it driven internally? Is it driven by the market outside? Part of it is that the US is an enormous country. We have culturally many, many examples of multi-billionaires that have been created, multi-billion dollar industries that have been created. So the realization of that potential um, is, you know, instilled in us even when we're young. It's, it's in our press, it's in our media, it becomes just part of, you know, the mores of America. Um, I think that's been missing, um, you know, in the UK and in Northern Ireland. I was talking to um, you know, some friends of ours, and you know, when they were growing up, same age um, relatively that I am, business was not even listed as one of the careers to pursue. It was your traditional professional careers of being a doctor or lawyer. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the American Midwest, um, so culturally very similar, um, you know, large agriculture presence, um, Business was one of the the professions that that you know I was brought up with as a potential job to pursue in addition to kind of the traditional uh, you know, lawyer doctor professions and so to to me I think that that's that's also played into it. That's really interesting actually. It's a culture which is ingrained. So even you know watching some of the the older U.S. movies, you've always got this pursue the American dream. There's nothing that you can't do in the U.S. if you put your mind to it. It's also the role that business has always had in um, creating change for good in the U.S. And 
know, it, it has always been part of that forward progress. Um, whereas I think, you know, there is a European tendency to look towards government to provide those solutions, whereas um, you know, the U.S. has really always been about the, pri- the private sector providing those solutions. Again, it's a little bit, you know, you take the, the baseball analogy in the U.S., it's go for it, three strikes and you're out, but at least try. So seek forgiveness rather than uh, can I do it, wherein it's, it's near the opposite here. And, and there's also, you know, the, even if you have the, the three strikes and you're out, I don't think that failure in the U.S. is perceived as failure um, by putting yourself out, out there, taking the chance, even if you fail, um, you know, is still seen as a success because you did try. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's also just a very positive value that Americans um, overall, you know, believe in. Here, everybody's really out to find something that you failed at so they can really put that in, you know, on the, on the front page. Oh, Jeff or John <laughs> or Laura failed at this. Whereas in the U.S., it's a different thing. It's, it's yes. like, it's a battle scar. So it's actually a good thing. The phrase that I've heard, it's this idea of tall poppies um, and wanting to cut down tall poppies. Um, and I think that type of attitude of, um, you know, maybe getting too big for your britches and, and being cut mm. down, um, you can, can put a damper on ambition. Interesting, because you cut down enough of the tall poppies you genetically change everybody so that there isn't any more tall puppies <laughs> <Yes>. anymore. <laughs> Take that theme. If I want to grow a company, regardless of whether it's a unicorn or it's you know it's it's ten or twenty million, uh, I've got to fund it some way. Yes. So we've got <clears throat> venture capital, or we've got uh, risk capital, if you like, whatever you want to call it. What are the key differences between risk capital providers in the U.S. and risk capital providers in the U.K.? There is. I, I don't want to call it a gambling mentality because that's not not really the right phrase, but it's the understanding in the valley that you may make 10 or 20 investments. And one of those investments will, you know, have such outsized returns that it, you know, covers the risk that you're taking on the the 19 that may not turn out as well as you want. Um, I think that people are looking for the more successful singles and doubles to, to go back to the baseball analogy in the rest of America, as well as um, in the UK and Northern Ireland, and you know, it it is a less risky appetite um, for you know for venture funding. Um, the flip side is you could also say that it's actually more sensible, um, you know, it's a, a more sensible approach. You're less likely to lose your investors' money with with that type of um, with that type of approach, but it, it does um, limit the size of fundraising rounds and the availability of capital. Is it the case that those venture capitalists, those risk capitalists, are they a bit more risk averse? I think part of it also relates to the size of the funds that, that you can you can raise. Um, the the valley accounts for about fifty percent of U.S. venture investment, so it's it's you know it, it's an incredible amount of money. It's about twenty five billion that was placed in in twenty sixteen. Having said that, I guess the statistics and history will say that. Um, the reason why the Valley in Southern California has done so well is it's sort of self-fulfilling, so they're able to take more risks, maybe because they have more money, but also maybe they attract more money because there's been more success, or if you like. Oh, yes, there, there's an incredible positive feedback loop in the Valley, um, and it attracts money, it attracts talent. Trying to recreate that effect is difficult anywhere else. Each success brings more success and, and the, the ability to fund more risk. 
the opportunities truly are much larger. Taking that little bit of risk adversity difference out of the equation, are there any other subtle differences you think that a U.S. investor is looking for as opposed to a U.K. investor, or is that is are there similar key things? It is the capital hurting that that you tend to see? Um, uh, you know, you will see the you know investment du jour where you know everybody is going after a social messaging platform um you know and it, it is equivalent to the um you know nobody ever gets fired for i for buying ibm um and so if you are making investments that are similar to everyone else that that tends to be um yeah a safe strategy you see that similarity um you know in the uk and in Northern Ireland, where you know there are investors that understand certain businesses, and that's those are the businesses that they want to invest in. And if you get outside of, you know, what their area of expertise has been, it becomes more difficult um, to attract capital. So, from an investor perspective, to summarize, the investors are more comfortable in investing in market sectors that they know. From an entrepreneur who's looking for investment. They need to be careful, if you like, and select their potential investors more carefully so that they're going after somebody who knows a little bit about the market that they're in. The added value of that is that the investor can actually add more value. Absolutely. By concentrating on two or three sectors, um, you know, that investor, you know, starts building a lot of expertise um, and is able to um, you know, cross-pollinate between their investments, build up that base of knowledge, bring that advice to, the, um, you know, to their fundee. Um, you know, the company gains from that expertise, but it's also right, it's a, it's a much easier conversation to have with your investor because there's a, a much um, you know, shallower learning curve that your investor has to go up. Okay, so here's a question. We'll see entrepreneurs who say, you know, it's difficult to get money in the UK and Ireland we're going to be capped. Let's go and look for um, money in the U.S. on the West Coast where there's lots of money. Will, in your opinion, U.S. investors actually invest in offshore companies? I, I would say that will be sector specific. I think if you come to the U.K. and Northern Ireland in particular, um, you know, the innovation that is happening in ag tech here um, you know, is on par or better than what's happening in the U.S. And so um, I, absolutely. It's just being targeted and finding the right capital that will come here. Um, if you're, you know, already a large VC in the Valley, um, you have enough, you know, fish in your pond to go fishing after that you don't necessarily need to leave the Valley. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the big challenges in trying to attract capital out of the Valley. Put a little realism on it. If a company in the UK wanted to attract investment from a, a Valley company, their proposition needs to be in order of magnitude better than the local company and really sit within the sweet spot of the of the investors. Yes, I, I, I think that's right. Yeah, the, the capital will flow to the opportunity, but there will, you know, there's just, just the logistics, the management of it, the inability to spend time to walk down the street to have the meeting. Um, you know, are all risk factors that make it more difficult. And is it fair to say those companies who, who potentially can attract investment from, from the Valley or, or Southern California 
are probably going to be at a little bit of a later stage where they've sort of they've really proved the concept that they've got some business under their belt rather than we're pre-revenue. I think it depends on the opportunity and that goes back to right the the ability or the willingness to fund um, strong entrepreneur potentially no no revenue yet for the company but you know taking a disruptive approach to a market where you know there's an understanding how cost curves are going to play out how an industry can scale you know systems based approach okay well that's that's positive i guess two other little factors then really investors are are investing in in the people in the team just as much as they are in the in the the opportunity the market and the product the distance is going to make that that relationship building that much more difficult so that's going to extend the time at, at the very least in terms of uh, day one, this looks interesting to here's your money. Part of it is going out and having dinner, um, you know, socializing with uh, your investor, you know, breaking bread, um, getting to know the people and understanding, do I trust this person? Um, you know, you're not going to answer everything in the pitch. You've got to realize you've got to spend the time and probably the money to make sure that that happens. Otherwise, the investment won't. Correct. Is there necessity that an offshore investee will have to set up a U.S. incorporated company? If I if I were in the U.S. investing in the U.K., I would not make that a requirement for myself because, okay. um, right, I can, you know, bring the money over into the U.K. You know, take the controlling interest or you know board seats that I want to ensure that I have right the control that I need. Um, you know, I, I think the, the issues really come around what happens in terms of repatriating the dollars after a sale, you know, what are the tax implications of it. I think there, that, that's where some nuance starts to play out, but I don't, I don't think from a control standpoint or oversight standpoint, a U.S. Um, entity would be required. So let's change direction a, a little bit. Let's assume that uh, a very big opportunity has succeeded in uh, securing investment from a West Coast investor, and they're now trying to crack the U.S. market. What do you think of the blockers, or what should they watch out for in, in tackling that U.S. market? Part of it is understanding just the different regulatory environment um, that you're going to be operating in. Each of the 50 states will have separate laws. So again, some of it's sector dependent. If you're fintech, you may have individual state licenses um, that you need to get in addition to national um, licenses. So th- there, there's not a um, broad general answer, but it, it, again, the, the regulatory framework is something that would be critical to understand. If it's a product-based company, understanding distribution within the United States, certain cities have taken on, you know, as with the Valley, different industry specialties. And so is one of those, does one of those have a natural affinity to the type of industry that you're coming to the U.S. with? I, I think having somebody on the ground that has some knowledge of the U.S. would clearly, clearly benefit that. From your experience, do you see differences in, in, in the go-to-market strategies between the U.S. and U.K. Europe? It's industry-specific. There's a huge amount of branding that happens in the U.S., which is part of it, but it's feet on the ground, making the cold calls, getting the introductions, you know, doing the hard business of selling is absolutely critical um, in the U.S. Really creating a robust, sustainable business means that you have to pursue that much longer tail 
And that can be hard for a startup, being able to build out that sales force. Um, part of that plays into the geography of the U.S. Again, depending on what type of um, you know, sector you're going after, just the geographic distances you need to cover in the U.S. can make sales and marketing incredibly expensive. Anecdotally or, or otherwise, post um, the decision on Brexit and post President Trump's put America first policy, does that make things more difficult, easier, or just the same for UK, Ireland, European companies trying to break into the US market? I think that anything that creates uncertainty for business is bad. It's difficult for any business, large or small, to make you know, sound business decisions in the face of uncertainty. Summarizing what we've chatted about, can we say then that the U.S., if you're going west, uh, can be a huge opportunity for uh, UK, Irish businesses to break into. However, you need to go in with your eyes open. You need to do your homework first. It could also be a great expense. It can also destroy the company. So make sure you're at the right stage. Make sure you, you understand the market in detail. Make sure you've got enough funding to carry you through to your first reference orders and beyond. That is... Absolutely correct. There is a natural desire right, to operate in markets that are familiar, both culturally and from a language standpoint, um, and the, the size of the opportunity. But um, because it is so large, right, you are entering into a market where there's a lot of competition you may not be aware of. Um, and as a startup, you have limited resources. So... Um, you know, it, it needs to be a careful decision and that it's not a distraction. I think that's one of the, the major things that entering into the U.S. prematurely can, can happen to a company is that it takes the, their focus off of their home market and they may make mistakes here um, that, that can actually hurt the business long term. The talent here is on par with anything that I've seen in the U.S., right? And so even though culturally there may be... Um, kind of this tempered ambition, there's no reason for it. Like what, what the people of Northern Ireland are doing is really, really amazing. Um, you know, just, just to give an example, um, SAP's future is all about HANA. Um, HANA was developed in Northern Ireland at their research lab here, right? The, the talent in Northern Ireland is incredible. Just to finish off, and especially for our Northern Irish companies trying to break into the US market, Speak slowly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Jeff, thanks very much for your time. I'm sure that this will be very insightful for a lot of our Northern Ireland entrepreneurs and probably wider afield as well. Thanks, John and Jeff, for today's episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for a summary of the discussion and all other information. Please get in touch with us via Twitter or Facebook to give us your feedback on today's podcast, all linked below. I look forward to catching up with you all on our next episode. Thanks for listening.